Hey there listeners, welcome to Horror Movie Club, the show where two dudes who aren't quite nerds but not quite noobs choose a horror movie each week to rate and review. I'm Ashvin, I've got Brian on the phone with me, and this week we're going to be talking about the 2000 horror film Scream 3, directed by Wes Craven and starring David Arquette, Nev Campbell, Courtney Cox, Patrick Dempsey, and Scott Foley. In this film, a mass killer shows up on the set of a sequel of a fictional film, and we picked this movie because I think we both are pretty excited about the upcoming Scream film, which drops, uh, I want to say, in January. Is that right, Brian? Yeah, yeah. Boy, I was just thinking, oh, I got to write down the exact date of that drop for our episode, and I did not. I think it's... um. Oh, here I did. January 14th, 2022. Oh, cool. All right. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. And I, I thought it was going to be called Scream 5, but I think it's just called Scream, right? It is. Yeah. With a five in the place of the S. Oh, clever. Which you cannot say <laughs> without sounding awkward. Yeah. <laughs> five cream. Five cream. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Five cream. <laughs> uh, yeah. Have you seen a preview for that one yet? No, I'm avoiding that like the plague. Have you seen it? If you have, Uh, don't say anything about it other than yes or no. Okay. I saw it. When I saw it, I didn't realize it was a new one coming out. So like... uh, You've already said too much. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's it's out there. Um, So yeah, I'm I'm really excited to check it out. Uh, Are you a big uh, fan of the franchise? Yeah. I mean, so far. And I am excited. I think we'll tackle four sometime in the next month as well. So yeah, I'm excited. I'm a fan of the franchise. Mm -hmm. I have tempered expectations as always with any new movie and a franchise that I like. And I feel like we were generally let down by most 2021 movies that were part of a franchise. So I'm, (laughs) I'm, I'm very, very hesitant about it, but, uh, nevertheless excited. I hope for the best. Yeah, I feel the same. Installments, uh, generally, like I feel like there's a lower bar. It's it's rare that like you're ever gonna meet what the original uh, succeeded at. Um, but we recently saw part two just like two three months ago, um, and I forget where we fell. Like, was it like in the two or three score range? I gave it a four, I believe. Oh, okay. I think I, I think might we have were pretty high on it. Oh, okay, okay, cool. Um, yeah, I mean, it was a fun watch, but, uh, yeah, that doesn't look, not like up to the classic of the first one, right? No, not, not up to the snuff with the first one, but, um, I think we both kind of thought the second act of it was better than the second act of the first one. Oh yeah. Yeah. With the the car sequence and then at the theater, yeah. um, the production stage. Yeah. The, the library it, messaging stuff. Yeah. Yeah. There, there were just more, uh, better set pieces in the second act than there were in the original Scream. The original Scream... I love it. It's like a top ten horror movie, but it gets a little slow somewhere in the middle. Mm, yeah, the momentum kind of drops. Yeah, yeah. But then the house party, I feel like, is is like a, a great like finale. Oh um, yeah, great that, that finale. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no. That, thanks for reminding me. Yeah, Scream, Scream Two did have some really great uh, set pieces. Um, so yeah, excited to hear what you think of this one. Um, noticeably, I, I think one of the biggest differences here is uh, the writer who was responsible for the first and second one uh, wasn't didn't return back or didn't return for this one, and they kind of discarded uh, the script that he had for this one. So it felt like this one was kind of being written from scratch by like a fresh new writer. Yeah, and in fact, he Kevin Williamson hadn't had he didn't have a complete script for it, but I think we mentioned this in Scream Two episode, but he as part of pitching his original idea for Scream, had an outline for mm-hmm. two or three or four sequels even um, that 
just to entice buyers so that he could sell it as kind of a franchise instead of a single film. He didn't have time to write the screenplay for this one, but he tried to flesh out his outline a little bit more and passed it over to Aaron Kruger, but um, it sounds like quite a bit of that was discarded. Yeah, yeah. And I, I kind of get that sense watching it, too. It feels a little different tonally. Um, yes, the and, tone is very different. And yeah. apparently, uh, not to villainize Aaron Kruger, the writer, there was a lot of pressure from the studio on this production to get a little more comedy heavy with it. Um, Columbine happened, what, in April of 1999? Mm-hmm. So the original idea centered... I think it brought things back to Woodsboro. It may have involved the high school a little bit too. So they were like, let's stay as far away from like small town high school violence as we can. And let's lean into the comedy elements because Scream's always been a little bit about the comedy, right? And it it didn't quite pan out the way the tone does in the other movies. But right. yeah, I, I think part of the blame, a lot of the blame lies on the studio rather than Aaron Kruger. Yeah, I mean, I, I even saw things like there was pressure not to like have blood um, on on the set or, or like in any of the scenes, and so I know Wes Craven had to come in and, and push for a lot of what we do see. But it's definitely yeah, really stripped back and interesting how it's like all uh, driven from that uh, the context of like recent school shootings, right? Which um, you know, I, I I feel like you know you still got school shootings today. We just had one you know pretty recently in the last few weeks. Um, it, it's interesting that back then. It was uh, like the media was kind of like pointed to often, but I don't hear that anymore. Like you don't hear about like uh, things being pulled out of like upcoming films because of the shootings uh, as much as you did back then. Like, do do you feel it's like you still hear about that? It does seem like attention has come away from media a little bit. I think there's more of a an emphasis or realization, if you agree with it, on on mental health and poor mental health um, and the availability of guns and. People are easing up on the media. Mm-hmm. At least that's the perception I get. And I think we've just been through it so many times, and it's like, well, what are we really going to do here? Like, right. Yeah. Censor everything. Um, right. So, yeah. I, but, you know, then again, the hunt was uh, that kind of happened to the hunt, remember? Just a, a year ago, right? Oh, a year yeah. Or two ago. And that's why I kept getting pushed back. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, it was pulled from the schedule for a while due to some particular shooting. I can't even remember which one. And then it got really politicized because Trump talked about it. And yeah. 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 So it still it, happens. But yeah, you're right. It, it, it's not as much as it used to. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's just really, I hear like uh, that criticism that movies or video games are too violent. It seems like that's just become the norm. And now uh, other things are kind of brought up, like to your point of mental health or access to, to weapons and things like that. So yeah, interesting I, how that I'm not dialogue. super in touch with the video game scene, so I can't really speak to how much video games are or are not getting heat for that kind of stuff. But <laughs> they've also gotten so much more. If there was anything to point the finger at these days, it would probably go on like first-person shooter games instead of horror movies. Yeah, I mean, if anything, I imagine games have gotten a lot violenter in the last 20 years. Even movies, too. I mean, like when we go back and watch these 90s films compared to like some of these films that uh, are coming out, um, I, I, I do feel like there's more violence. Um, I don't know so much in horror, but uh, maybe in, in more general like action films and things, I, I feel like the bar has kind of gone up since then. Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, you've got stuff like Game of Thrones that brings really hardcore violence into the mainstream and nobody yeah. really bats an eye at it. Right, 
Right. (laughs) So I think it'd be hard to point the finger at horror movies these days. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, well, yeah, so I, I, and I think you can definitely like tell that difference when you watch this one is it's like they've really pulled back on the, the slashing, the gore. It is more on the comedy side, as you mentioned, or tries to be. Um, but surprisingly, pulling back on all that, they still had a high budget here. Well, a higher budget for the franchise, um, $40 million compared to the 24 that they spent for Scream 2. Um, and then a, a lower box office. Uh, I think this one... The, the first two had about 173, 172 million. This one dipped down. So interesting to see the box, the, the budget go up like almost twice as much, but then you don't have that same return. Yeah, the box office on this one was 162 ish. Yeah. It's almost 10 so million yeah. Um, I, and then Scream 4 would only go on to make 97 million. So that was by oh, far the wow. lowest box office of the franchise. Wow. I didn't realize that was that low. That's crazy. Yeah. And that one also had a, a $40 million budget. And yeah, okay. the second, Scream 2 was like 25 and I think the first Scream was like 15 Yeah, wow, that's so interesting. I wonder if with this one, it was like the trilogy fatigue, like part three's coming out, um, you're not excited. And then part four was like, what, 10 years later from this one? Right, it was so far la- far after the fact. I have to believe that's part of why it didn't perform that well. Yeah. I, I remember, uh, I think when I went to see Scream 4, it was the last time I saw... Uh, all the screams because like we did like a full day of like watching one, two, and three, and then went to see four. Uh, so I, I I thought people were like pretty excited about that one coming out. Did you see that one in theaters? No, I didn't. I didn't see that one until a f- maybe two or three years ago. Okay, okay, dude, and, I had never seen this one either. I couldn't remember oh. if I had seen it, and uh, I definitely have not. Yeah, I was gonna ask you that because uh, yeah, I, I feel like I've seen it, but I, I I didn't remember like who the killer killers were. Um, so I felt like I was watching it for the first time. So that's kind of cool. We both kind of had like the the mystery around it to to like we didn't know who the killers were gonna be going into this. Yeah, yeah, I definitely didn't. Right, that which I th- I think is a, a huge part of making this this film work, which. Uh, br- brings me to another question for you. Like, uh, th- this film definitely lead, leans pretty heavily into like the whodunit uh, space, right? It's, it's like a murder mystery in a lot of senses. Yeah, I think two and three were even more mysteries than, than the first one. Yeah, right, right. What makes like this one more of like that versus like, like the first one I feel like you can easily call horror, slasher, uh, campy and all that stuff. This one, though, I mean, I, I kind of struggle at certain points to say, uh, like, is this horror? Is this like mystery thriller? Yeah, part of that's easing up on the violence, but I think there are just so many more characters in this one, and they put a little bit more emphasis in the writing and in what the camera's doing. Like, the whole movie is just a bit more geared towards red herrings and making you think certain people did it. Like, yeah. It's a it's a topic of the first one. I mean, I, you can't say it's not a part of the first film. It certainly is. And even the characters themselves are talking about who did it. Right. But, it yeah, it does seem like murder mystery is a genre <laughs> emphasized more in, in two and three. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it. I felt it pretty heavy in this one. Which it um, kind of almost has to be because it's like, what is all happening to her again? Like, who could it be this time and why? <laughs> like, what are they going to come up with? Yeah, yeah. They come up with something every time, I guess. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I guess they do. Yeah. I guess a lot of people that want to kill uh, Sydney. Um, the Rotten Tomatoes score only 40% compared to the previous two, which had a 79 and 82. 
So you've got quite a drop there as well. So not very well received. I, I don't know. Do you, do you think uh, this has gotten like any kind of cult status throughout the years? I, I haven't heard of anything, but curious if you have. No, I mean, the only, I think the thing it gets mentioned for the most in horror discussions these days is Courtney Cox's horrible haircut. Oh my God. That was a That's terrible like haircut. The film's legacy. <laughs> it is bad. Like it's excruciatingly bad. Yeah. <laughs> it's just really hard to picture a world where somebody was like, I'm through. I've finished your hair and this is what it looks like. Yeah. <laughs> and Courtney Cox saying, okay, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Here's your money. What happened? Was that really like in style in, in 2000? You're talking about like the, what was it? Like spiky hair on top and then like long hair coming down? No, what, it was horrible bangs. Oh, oh okay. That's what it was. Spiky <laughs> hair on top of Monk. Uh, I, I'm thinking about like uh, when she shows up on the set. Uh, yeah, I well, bangs like coming down. Like, like were, were they coming down? Do you long need enough? to pause and and Google a picture of Courtney Cox in Scream Three? I I feel like it. It was like all I could like picture for a while. It was just like her face, and I, I feel like it was like this kind of like short uh, hair on the top that kind of like uh, uh, goes upwards. Maybe like a small amount of bangs, and then long hair on the sides, which. Uh, didn't make sense to me. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, she definitely, the bangs are short. They're like short and just rigid, straight across. Spiky? No, there's no spikiness. Oh, okay. <laughs> that might have been, that might, I might have imagined the spikiness. <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was, it was pretty atrocious, whatever it was. Yeah. It was, it's, that was hard to see. Um, but I, I mean, what was that, 2000 fashion, I guess? I don't know, man. I don't know. It was just a mistake. In general. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like we should go back and find photos of ourselves from that time. See if we can tie <laughs> anything out there. In 2000, yeah, I was definitely, I was basically the haircut you're describing. I spiked it up in the front. <laughs> I think in 2000, I even had one of my friend's moms dye that, that spiky thing in the front blonde. Oh my God. Are you serious? Yeah. So all, all brown and then like a, a, a spike of blonde? Exactly. Yeah. It, luckily it didn't show up very well. Uh, that's great. That's great. The highlights. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, okay, yeah. So it, that makes sense of that that legacy has carried uh, through the years for this film. <laughs> but uh, other, otherwise, uh, yeah, I, I feel like it, it wasn't very uh, well received uh, from a critical standpoint. Um, what else? You got, you got any other background you, you think worth bringing up here? Yeah, I mean, I think just more about the writing. We talked about how the studio was pressuring uh, Craven and Kruger to ease up on the violence and go heavy on the comedy but it was also just plagued by a bunch of constant changes to the script and another big change they had to make because Nev Campbell wasn't as available as they thought slash hoped that she would be Mm -hmm. Um, so they kind of had to rewrite the movie to only have her be in it towards the end of the film because she had a limited amount of shooting days and it sounds like the crew eventually started shooting scenes multiple ways just to be prepared in the event that they'd have to end up making a change because all the rewrites they were doing during shooting would end up causing them to reshoot another prior scene so that it would be continuous with what they had rewritten yeah so they were like let's just shoot this three different ways so that we'll be prepared whatever the storyline ends up truly being Right, right. Uh, which is no way to make a movie, I, I have to imagine. So No, yeah. I can imagine that leads to like, it being a little disjointed at parts. Yeah, yeah. So, um, And then the ending was reshot three months after they had already finished principal photography. 
So mm-hmm. all sorts of weird script changes and reshoots and and shooting things more than they really had to. So uh, not a not a good smooth production with this one. Yeah, I thought a part of that might have been um, similar to Scream Two, where they kind of like shot some alternative like fake endings, just to, like avoid any spoilers or leaks getting out. Um, so I, I I thought that's kind of what like they were trying to do by kind of uh, confusing everyone with with the different shots, but it sounds like it was more than that. They were tight lipped with the actors again, like not even the actors knew what would they would be shooting that day sometimes or like what was going to happen to their characters and mm-hmm. i think they may have had drafts of the script to confuse fans and stuff too but there were just also real world problems sure yep all right that makes sense yeah, yeah. I, I think it was under a pretty tight timeline as well yeah uh, i believe so yeah uh well yeah uh that, and, and then you also have uh marco beltrami coming back uh who's been uh who's the composer and uh, I think he did the other movies as well. And we've we've heard a lot of his work, right? Yeah, yeah. He's a prolific composer. So, yeah, he's scored a lot of the movies we've talked about. Um, mm-hmm. Creed appears more in this movie than any other movie we've ever talked about. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> like, right away appears. <laughs> he's like the first and last things you hear. Yeah, I know. That's that's what you want on both ends of a movie. <laughs> good, good dose <laughs> of Creed. <laughs> uh, any other background? I think all I have after that is the Ohio Connection, if you're ready for that. Yeah, let's hear it. Alrighty, our friend Alex connects every movie to our home state of Ohio for us. Alex owns the Jukebox Bar and Restaurant in Cleveland, Ohio, so if you're in the area, go pop in for some food and some drinks. And Alex says, Screen 3 is a slasher film directed by Wes Craven, starring many of the surviving cast members from the previous films, such as David Arquette, Nev Campbell, and Courtney Cox. It also introduces several Scream newcomers, such as Patrick Dempsey, Lance Henriksen, and Scott Foley, who plays the role of Roman Bridger, director for the meta-film within a film Stab 3. This was Foley's first film role and helped launch a successful TV career with prominent roles on Felicity, Scrubs, and Scandal, along with supporting roles on Dawson's Creek, House, and Grey's Anatomy. In 2000, Foley married actress Jennifer Garner, who he met while on the set of Felicity, but the couple divorced in 2004 due to irreconcilable differences. Jennifer Garner is a graduate of Denison University located in Granville, Ohio. Oh, cool. Wow, I didn't know Jennifer uh, Garner went to Ohio. Me neither. That's cool. That's cool. Look at us. Yeah. I don't see Look her enough you, Ohio. anymore. Yeah. <laughs> have, you, have you seen her in a while? Uh, yeah, I just saw her just the other day. Got oh, some how's she doing? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I feel like she's in a lot of commercials these days. Yeah, yeah. I never see her on the big screen anymore. I liked her. Me too. Cool. Good good connection. Uh, yeah, so Scott Foley, I didn't, I didn't realize this was his uh, first film. I didn't either. That's surprising they would give him... Uh, such a prominent role yeah yeah right right, off the bat yep good good for him yeah all right well do you want to jump to the plot hit the spoilers and get into our review let's do it all right uh hey uh, i just heard my fax machine go off do you you mind if i take a quick break i I just want to see what i got there (laughs) yeah man even for 2000 you're a little dated but go for it (laughs) i know all right thanks i'll be right back
Hey, man. Sorry, I'm, I'm back. Okay. Everything uh, going okay with that fax machine? Yeah, yeah. It's just been uh, acting up. But it turns out it, it was just my dog. I taught her how to use the fax machine. So now every time she farts, she likes to send me a fax about it. So uh, I, I get a fax telling me that she farted and it smelled the gas, and then it, it hits me at the same time. So it's, <laughs> it's a clever trick. That's that's impressive. Yeah, with the farting or the faxing? Uh, but everything. Oh, yeah, all parts of this. <laughs> Mostly that you own a fax machine. Yeah. Who doesn't? I, I don't know how you get by without one. Yeah, I mean, some things really, like the medical world, still really going on faxes. Really? Oh, my God. That's that's shocking. Hey, uh, yeah, yeah, so so fax machines are in this. Um, and uh, do you, would you consider part one or part two? Is there like a tech element to Screams? I forgot if we talked about this in part two. But like how part one is all about like the landline. Part two, you got into cell phones. And this one, we're getting to like fax machines and, and some other technological advancements? Uh, I feel like that's a stretch. I mean, yes, we follow a a bit of a journey about phones and phone technology, but... Yeah. (laughs) I I appreciate that aspect of Scream. It follows the uh, telecommunication involvement in in technology, and it kind of brings it into the story with each movie. Yeah, we'll have to keep an eye on that in 2011's Scream 4, see what that looks like. Yeah, I'm guessing they finally get to email. Uh, maybe maybe this one coming out uh, next year. They they're on like TikTok or something. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I wonder if there's some social media stuff. It'll be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, cool. So uh, let's dive into the plot here. Um, this movie kicks off with uh, our, our our character Cotton Weary, who's been in the last few films. Uh, he was this guy who was falsely accused. Uh, he, he was a falsely accused killer from the first movie, and now he's like this big-time TV show host. So he's driving through Hollywood and gets this call uh, from a woman who claims to be a, a big fan of his. So he's on the phone flirting with her, and then uh, her voice changes, and she reveals herself to be Ghostface Killer, and, and we get our signature voice there. And Ghostface uh, is like, I'm watching your girlfriend. You got to tell me where Sidney Prescott is. Otherwise, your girlfriend's going to die. So um, he hangs up and rushes home to save his girlfriend. Meanwhile, we see the villain watching the girlfriend at home. She gets out of the shower. She's putting her clothes on. She thinks she hears Cotton's voice. Uh, So she goes out to talk to him, but it turns out to be Ghostface Killer who pursues her, does all his, like, slipping and running into walls and things, but um, eventually she, like, locks herself in her room. Cotton shows up, and uh, before he can save her, Ghostface kills uh, both of them. What did you think of this opening? I actually thought it was pretty solid. Oh, it, really? Yeah, it seemed like a really logical place to go from screen two because Cotton was all about trying to turn his false accusation into fame and money and uh, try to go places. And this one shows us that that worked. He did. Yeah. He's like this big movie host. Mm-hmm. And uh, I... I just thought it was kind of a fun change of pace. Both the other movies opened with people we didn't know who weren't important to the story or the franchise at all getting murdered. Yeah. Um, so to start things off with Cotton, somebody we know, and to see him go bye-bye was kind of a nice change of pace. And I actually thought it was fairly suspenseful. Um, and there was a nice added element here with the fact that she heard his voice earlier the killer was imitating his voice so she was then suspicious of him yeah um, right of cotton so, yeah yeah 
And she stabbed him, right? Uh, I think she hits him with like a club or something. Oh, yeah. there you go. Yeah, she hits him. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that's like one of the biggest things of this opening is it establishes that Ghostface can now like modulate his voice into uh, the, the voices of your friends and family. So no, no one's safe anymore. Um, but, I, you know, compared to the first two openings, I, I don't know what it was about those, but um, like see, seeing this one where he's like in a on a highway getting a call versus like in the first one, you've got a, a, a woman at home by herself. The second one, you've got like this couple in a crowded theater uh, that just gets attacked. Something about a dude on a highway getting a call just like didn't excite me that much. Um, and then, yeah, I, I liked the stalking of uh, his girlfriend in, in the house. Um but outside of that, uh, I don't know, it kind of felt a little bit weak to me out of the three. But y- you would take this one over the second one? Yeah, if I had to rank the openings of the Scream movies so far, I'd say number one at the, at the top, then number three, then number two. Yeah, okay. I hear you, like, this. we're supposed to feel some suspense while he's on the road, like, screeching his tires trying to get home. <laughs> I didn't feel yeah. that. I, I didn't. I wasn't interested in that element of things. But once they got to the house and, and the... The specific setup and the, and the characters involved, I was I was into that. Yeah, I actually thought for a while that like, oh, Cotton is the killer here, because uh, yeah, the, the the guy was talking Cotton's voice while he was outside the door. Um, but yeah, that that would have been a pretty early reveal. That's um, perhaps the most improbable thing about this movie is that <laughs> Ghostface had the ability to mimic anyone's voice saying yeah, anything precisely. I know. I know. <laughs> I know that part. I don't think that exists today. I don't think so either. Uh, deep fakes, uh, all, all that stuff, you still can't do it? I think with a deep fake, hmm. Yeah, I don't know how you... I don't think you can change the voice. Like, I think you can mimic voices. There's AI that does it. But mm-hmm. I think even then you can kind of tell. Sure, sure. But this was, like, flawless and all done on this handheld machine. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, th- this was a stretch. Um, though, you know, one thing I really liked here is that Cotton got killed. I, I've kind of like hated his character in, in every movie, so I was kind of happy to see him go. Were, were you a fan of his? Yeah, no, I agree with you. Even though he's wrongfully accused, uh, he's still just not very likable. Yeah, right. He also pretends that he doesn't have a girlfriend when he originally thinks this is just some fan calling him, so. Yeah. But then it's he bit... doesn't give up Sydney, so, you know. Yeah, that's true. He's a, a complex character. Not he unlike is. Gail Weathers. Sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Good good call. Is her um, hair spiky? Is it not? It's complex. <laughs> I, I think I saw one strand going up at a certain point. All right. Uh, so then we meet the rest of the crew. Uh, so the, there's Sydney from the last two. Uh, she's now like living in isolation, kind of secured somewhere, uh, secluded from everyone else, uh, living um, as a crisis phone line operator so she doesn't have to like see people. And, and we get like this scene where, where like she's uh, living behind like uh, all these security uh, gates and stuff. So like she's kind of pulled herself away from society and gone to hiding. Um, Gil Weathers has apparently sold out and now works for like this big uh, entertainment network. So she's giving a lecture. She gets approached by this detective who is now looking into the murder of Cotton and he wants Gil to help him because she wrote a book on the first set of murders from the first one. So the two of them visit the set for the upcoming sequel of Stab called Stab 3. Um, at the On the set, uh, Gil runs into uh, Dewey and they have a bit of a reunion we also meet uh, some of the other cast members, like uh, the director, who's Roman, and the other cast members are pretty uh, stressed out uh, about the uh, canceling of the production. Uh, two things for you here. 
the cast being um, you know stressed out that the the production now has to stop because someone has died. Do you think that was in any way reflective of what the studio or the filmmakers were thinking when they were making this film because of the the shootings that had happened and having to pull back on the horror and the horror and the gore? Oh, that's a good question. I hadn't thought about that layer of it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I just wonder if because uh, yeah, that seems to kind of mimic uh, the 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 backstory for this movie of, of not being able to be as violent or as uh, right. horrific as they wanted. Maybe I, just a coincidence. I don't know. Yeah, I think maybe a coincidence, but it's, it's interesting to think about. Yeah, and I feel like they kind of hit on that in Scream too, as well, like the idea of like violence in movies uh, driving violence in real life. So it wasn't necessarily something new in the franchise. Right, right, yeah, and they had to. They do discuss that a little bit: violence in movies and the nature of that kind of stuff in this right. movie. Right. Um, and then the other thing, uh, Gail and Dewey, man, I, I hated them in part two. Part three, it's like they're just picking up. Uh, where they start at the beginning of part two, where like they're they've been estranged and separated, but now they're kind of back and they're like you know those uh, angry like uh, uh, bangs and spikes flying at each other again. Uh, does are are you into the story? Did, did you care for this reconnection? I didn't care for the reconnection. I don't dislike Dewey. I don't dislike Gale. I don't dislike the two of them together. But it's a tired plot line of them being like hot and cold. And is yeah. Gail a total bitch, or is there actually something likable about her? Uh, it's just, it's kind of like yo-yoing of her character, and it's gotten it is. old. It's tired by this point. Yeah, every movie starts at this point where, like, Dewey and Gail are, like, against each other, and then the film's about them, like, kind of growing on each other. And so, like, it's just like we're, we're starting, resetting that again. They've so really become, tired. I mean, they're the, easily the number two and number three most important characters in this franchise. I mean, yeah. they're almost the main characters in this movie. I know, I know. They are a lot of... I feel like they get a little bit more screen time probably than uh, Sydney does here. I think so. Yeah. Um, yeah, I forget about... I mean, yeah, I'm curious to see 4 and, and how they, they, they react in that one. Or what, what type of uh, screen time they get there. Um, so, uh, yeah, we get the scene of Sydney, who she's in hiding. She has this dream at night that uh, her dead mother shows up. And like um, we know from the first film, her, her mother was killed by, um, you know, her uh, Sydney's ex-boyfriend uh, because the mother, Sydney's mother, was sleeping with uh, her ex-boyfriend's um, dad, and and caused that divorce or whatever. So um, we yeah we, we get a scene where where Sydney imagines her dead mother f- coming to her at night and then turning into the ghost face killer and attacking her. Uh, what would you think of like this kind of throwback to like a character we haven't talked about for like the last uh, the last film or two? I think it's a good place to return to because I think the soul of the franchise is really Sid's inner life and and Sydney as a character. So I enjoy when they focus on her and what's going on with her internally because as we discussed in the Scream Two episode, when they tried to introduce all the new characters. They all kind of sucked. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I'm on board with with learning more about Sydney's mental state. But what do you think about it? And it was kind of interesting to get some horror that was not slasher related horror. Yeah. Like there was some ghoulish haunting of uh, Sydney by her dead mother in her dreams. Yeah, that felt really fresh. Like this, like ghost kind of coming up to you at, at night, and, like she's covered in blood and calling Sydney's name. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, it's it cool to get that. Um, I agree with you. Like yeah, anything that uh, focuses on like the the state of where Sydney is or like what she's feeling emotionally uh, is going to help us buy into her character. 
But um, to your comment about new new characters, I, I kind of feel like the mother in introducing her at this point, she is kind of a new character because we never really saw her in the first one. Um, and she just kind of comes out of nowhere here. So she, it, it didn't feel like kind of like a, a shock to you that like, wait, who is this woman? That That's her mother. Like we never really kind of like even talked about that character really um before or like we've never like seen her before so is this really about sydney and like what she's thinking about or more of like introducing a new character i don't think her mother i wouldn't consider her mother a character in this one as much she's almost like the MacGuffin in a thriller movie okay Um, yeah (laughs) she's she's something that sid wants to learn more about and that they're all trying to discover more about because it could lead them to clues about who the murderer is and she's just something in Sid's past that's haunting her. So I don't think yeah. she functions like a true character functions. Sure, sure. Um, and a sequel's going going deeper into things that we already know that have been touched on in the franchise but not delved deeper into. I'm, I'm down for that yeah. rather than throwing in some new element they pretend was always there. Like Randy sure. having a sister that's super close with all of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the best friend sister yeah right. that that's a good point and, and i guess even before this scene we know she's thinking about her mother right because she, she has that scene with her dad where she's like do you ever wonder about like mom and um what uh i think i think he's like yeah what, what, what was going through her head or something right so yeah and she, i mean she's also on the phone with women in crisis all day the crisis hotline is specifically for women so it's uh it yeah. wouldn't be surprising that it'd be on her mind more now than ever Oh, interesting. I didn't try that parallel. That, that makes sense. All right. Um, meanwhile, back at the set in Hollywood, uh, one of the actresses for Stab 3 gets a call from the director and shows up at the office. The director isn't there, um, but she gets a phone call. Again, like hearing his voice, but then it uh, turns into Ghostface Killers and uh, she, telling telling her that she's going to die. She tries to hide um, gets attacked by Ghostface Killer. She tries to fend him off with uh, some prop weapons, but that doesn't work, and uh, she gets killed. What did you think of this attack scene? I did not care for it that much. These floppy props, <laughs> like her yeah. holding up a knife that turns out to be this floppy plastic thing, they're not mm-hmm. funny. I, I think that's yeah. the first real taste of Scream 3 showing what its humor is going to be like and it not really working. Yeah, um, it's kind of it's, it's kind of like a sad moment, right? It is a little bit sad. Yeah, I mean, like the the floppy props are kind of a metaphor for the film's humor in general. Yeah, totally, uh, just flaccid. Can't yeah, yeah. Can't perform when it matters. But I don't know. I like the setting here of her like backing into this costume slash prop room that has all these ghost face outfits hanging on racks and like creepy props in it but mm-hmm. uh the whole thing happens really fast with very little suspense yeah it happens fast with a little suspense it's also cutting back and forth between like some other security dude kind of like walking into the office seeing no one's there turning off the light walk out which i don't know why they did that it kind of pulled away the momentum um i i think the other bit of humor they try to throw in here is she's trying to call uh the security of the studios but she's like being like uh she's on uh like a uh, she, she's on like a what do you call those like the automated messages right where yeah they, where they're like yeah press one for like merchandise two for like show times three for security it's kind of funny which uh, why do you yeah. call the studio instead of 911 is beyond yeah me. i know exactly uh but you know other weird thing is uh you don't really see her get stabbed uh i think she just kind of falls over a door and there's blood on her face so uh yeah they're really pulling back on on the stabbing uh and in the violence here for sure. And this is Jenny McCarthy, by the way. 
Oh yeah, right, right. Um, so one other thing to mention before we get too far is that with each of these killings, so Cotton and now uh, this woman Jenny McCarthy, uh, the killer has left behind an old school photo of Sydney's uh, dead mother. And it's like a photo of her mother when she was younger. Supposedly, it, it looks like, you know, somewhere in like Hollywood or something. So uh, Gail and Dewey are kind of like digging into this and trying to figure out like, what, why is this going on? Yeah, right. And and they don't know about this period in Sid's mom's life. It's like, yep. why does she have these Hollywood glamour shots? And they discover for two years in her late teens, she kind of dropped off the face of the earth. And Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. So everyone's kind of wondering what, what went on with Sid's mom in those years. Yeah, and that supposedly will bring them to the answer of who the killer is. Exactly. Um, back at home, uh, Sydney gets this call uh, from Ghostface, who now has found her number, uh, and uh, he taunts her uh, with her dead mother's voice. So, you know, you're talking about like a machine that can mimic anyone's voice. I do wonder how this person got a recording of Sydney's uh, mother's voice. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> Diseased for years? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, and uh, telling her to switch on the news where she learns about the murders that have been happening and she decides to get out of seclusion and head over to Hollywood to join up with the rest of the crew Uh, in Hollywood uh, Dewey and Gail um, you know their their relationship is like starting to kind of flicker again they're hanging out at this house with some of the other cast members Um, Ghostface attacks and murders the guard outside of the house and then uh, starts sending the, 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 the people in the house a fax. And uh, everyone runs out except one dude who like stays behind to like, read the last fax message. And it says, um, the, one, the, the, the one of you that's going to die is the one that smells the gas. And then the house explodes. I kind of thought uh, like an exploding house was like uh, drawing the line between like horror and, and like cheap action. But <laughs> what, what, what did you think of like all of this? Yeah, I mean, this scene was extremely dumb. I, I just, yeah. Anytime gas is involved in a horror movie or action movie, it's just so unrealistic. Like, if there was enough gas to make the whole house explode, they would have smelled it yeah. forever ago. <laughs> they would have been, like, passed out by the CO2 by now. Yeah, right? exactly. They couldn't have even survived in that house. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, that's just not how explosions work in movies. This was silly, and everyone afterwards is just, like, frazzled by it it's almost cartoonish i know they Um, all go flying in different directions yeah (laughs) yeah it's it's really silly yeah yeah it's it's this is pretty i feel like they might as well have like stars cartoon stars floating around (laughs) their heads yeah 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 i want to say like this one like the weakest uh kills of the franchise so far I think, um, yeah, it is 100% yeah. the weakest. <laughs> but the fax machine, that, that didn't get you? I mean, it's <laughs> it's something. All right, yeah, yeah. Um, so then uh, Sydney uh, now, like, yeah, she meets up with uh, Dewey and Gail, and um, she goes to the movie set just kind of, like, wandering around, and uh, the set is kind of, like, set up as the first film, as, as the house in Woodsboro. Um, while she's there, she gets attacked by a ghost face killer and narrowly escapes. I got the sense in this attack scene, because uh, like in the other movies, it's okay for us to spoil the other movies, right? Yeah, right. We wouldn't so the, be here. The, the, yeah. The other movies have, have had two killers uh, each each time. And so in this one, I feel like uh, you get the sense that the two killers, because like she's blocking the door to this bedroom and you can tell someone's there pushing on it. And then, like, a moment later, someone jumps in through the window to attack her. 
So I, I definitely had the sense there were like multiple killers here again. Uh, what, what were your thoughts? This is the scene in the movie setting, right? Yeah, exactly. I didn't necessarily think that because the thing about the setting is you don't have any realization of what the space is outside of the set. Like, mm. you know, that would have had to have been running down steps and climbing a ladder in real life, but right. is there just a catwalk from that door to the other door, to the window? <laughs> to the, oh, yeah. Where it's really not that big of a deal. Sure, um, sure. And this was my favorite part of the movie. Sid, mm -hmm. again, exploring some of the inner life of Sid, like she comes here and sees this scene where all this horrible thing in her, hap in her life happened. Like she sees the replicated garage door that's all bloody where Tatum was crushed. Uh, so A, it's a good idea because of the emotional impact it has for Sid and B, it's just a cool setup. It's a cool setting. They're like falling out of doors and onto other parts of the set. Like it's yeah. disorienting. It's cool. Everyone's fascinated by like sets and backlots and what it really looks like to make a movie anyway. So mm -hmm. to get this peek behind the curtain in this meta series and and just have the action play out. It's it's cool. Yeah, that is really cool. Yeah, yeah, you're actually like on a set and you're seeing behind the scenes. That that's really cool. I get what you're saying about the emotional aspect here, because yeah, don't you get a scene here where Ghostface um, is like in in like a, a dead body bag in a way, like as her mother, as like her dead mother. And like yeah, kind of I think up. Stab Three, the fictional movie within the movie, had a scene that was a flashback of Sydney's mom's death. So oh, yeah. Sydney is seeing a replicated crime scene of her mother's death, which would be, yeah. I mean, what more can Sid go through? That's totally fucked up. Sure, it is. I guess I struggle because uh, you're right, like any uh, normal person, this would like be really traumatizing to you to like kind of walk through like your parents' murder scene, basically. Um, but I think for, for what might fail here for me is, is Nev Campbell. Uh, and like, I feel like when she gets... Uh, has emotions she just squints her eyes tighter like I, I that's like her only like uh, range for her acting is just like how uh, squinted her eyes are do you feel like she's she's like presenting a range here? like do you feel like she's like feeling a lot of trauma in, in the scene I I think you and I just disagree about her performance through this franchise in general that's been a beef of yours before yeah I and I know so. she has a couple of go-to moves but I believe it as Sid the character of Sydney at this point oh okay okay um so real life so Sydney yeah just I'm, isn't I'm on board with her performance but you're not into yeah. it I, I I just feel like she, she doesn't have like the range of like some other uh, actresses or actors that we've seen and because you're right this this should be like a really like emotional and tough moment but uh with her yeah she's just hard to read and yeah maybe she's just like a uh, representing maybe she's playing the role of a person who's hard to read or who doesn't have a lot of expressions outside of like squinting but uh I, you don't feel like that's like her, her one like go-to uh move i think the squinting and the nostril flaring are two go-to moves for sure <laughs> but i also don't think you should expect too much of a range in a character in the same role repeatedly you know yeah, and, and she's kind of like the rock of the franchise. It's yeah. talked about how tough she is, so I don't mm -hmm. expect her to be like a pool of tears and broken <laughs> down on the floor. And I don't expect her to be really excited about something either. Like, sure, sure, yeah. yeah. See, so you, you'll take the squint. 
I'll take the squint. <laughs> Throw in a nostril flare, I'm happy. Yeah. Put your Oscar hand on your neck. Right yep. Get the, the complete <laughs> trifecta. Nice, nice. All right. <laughs> Good to know. Um, so meanwhile, uh, Gail uh, has like kind of teamed up with this actress who plays Gail in, in the fictional movie. And they're doing like this kind of uh, detective work. And they discover that those two years that Brian mentioned that Sydney's mom was missing and no one knows where she was. She was actually in Hollywood working in horror films under the same producer who's producing Stab 3. And uh, when they all confront that uh, producer, he lets it on that, uh, yeah, she came, she was in Hollywood, did a bunch of B horror films. And we get the impression that she was taken advantage of pretty heavily by. Um, yeah, directors, producers, people in Hollywood. So um, this is this this one feels uh, a little gross because you know, like the the wine scenes are behind this movie. So this kind of parallels a lot of that, right? Right. That is, it's really eerie, and I mean, that's maybe another legacy of this movie too. Is that when people discuss it in detail, you can't help but think, yeah, whoa, like there's a reference to Harvey Weinstein within this movie distributed yes. <laughs> by the Weinstein Company. Yeah, I want to say there was one other movie we saw too, where it was like a wine scene movie thing, and some like something very similar happened to someone, and it's like, yeah, maybe the writing was on the wall for a long time. Yeah, you know, we have discussed this before, and I can't remember which one it was. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's just that's wild. And yeah. what I mean, not that I want to put myself in the shoes of Harvey Weinstein and humanize him, but what would you think if you were making this movie, and you're just like. Uh, everyone's pretty clearly talking about me or are they talking about <laughs> yeah. someone else or, yeah. you know, he probably doesn't even give a shit because right, he, right. he knows he's getting away with it. So that's all that matters. But yeah. Yeah. I think people like them or I like think they're invincible or whatever. Yeah. So, uh, they, they, they don't see that. Yeah. 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 It's odd. It's it very is. odd. It adds a whole <laughs> new level to the meta-ness in a it's not so yeah. fun way. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so then I think we come to our, like, uh, one of our final settings here, uh, is this house party that's going on for the director. It's a birthday party. Uh, it's a pretty small party. It's just the, the, the director, like the two or three remaining cast members from the movie, um, Gail and Dewey show up, um, uh, because they get this fake call from Sydney telling them to head there. Uh, when they're there, the Ghostface killer shows up and starts killing them. Um, and, uh, I think stabs one of the actresses, another one kind of gets killed behind a, a mirror, which I thought was very similar to a scene in part two where, uh, Dewey or I think Dewey gets attacked behind like a, a two way or like a, a two way mirror. Right. Oh yeah. Um, that was pretty fun. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was kind of like a throwback to part two. And then one of the other actors gets thrown out of a window so you're left with uh, Gail and Dewey. I thought that it was a fun scene where, where Gail uh, is in the basement trapped with Ghostface Killer and um, and like Ghostface Killer looks knocked out and she's trying to like swing uh, escape by him without waking him up. Kind of reminded me of in part two when uh, they have that car crash. Yeah, but this um, one ends with Ghostface throwing a knife at Dewey and hitting him in the forehead with the handle. <laughs> it's just like, again, when yeah. this movie's showing its humor and it's just this goofy slapstick, it's so dumb. Yeah, false flight. <laughs> yeah. There's also a moment where Ghostface enters a room and the first thing he does is punches Dewey in the face. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I laughed out loud. So like, scary. what? That was really unexpected. Yeah. It was very unexpected and just yeah. like the opposite of 
what you expect from a creepy lurking slasher killer. Just like, <laughs> yeah, just bam. a solid right hook. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's good. No, yeah, I mean, like, no knife in hand. It's just that the first move. <laughs> Take that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, some bizarre uh, sequencing here. Uh, Strange so, choices. Yeah. So Ghostface Killer takes uh, Dewey and Gale hostage and calls Sydney and lures her to the house. Um, she gets there and her and Ghostface Killer kind of face off. There's a moment where the detective shows up, and we're thinking it's the detective, uh, but um, I think, yeah, Ghostface Killer shows up, shoots him. So do you, did, did you have any idea at this point who Ghostface Killer was? No, I thought maybe, I was pretty sure it was probably the detective at this point, played by Patrick Dempsey. Oh, yeah. I was, but I guess I was, I was wrong. Yeah, I was leaning that way too, and then I thought once they started to lean into that angle, then you're like, oh, well, that can't be it. So then, I, then I was thinking it was like because he had an assistant or something, so I thought it might have been that guy. But yeah, we find out here that uh, the killer was the film director Roman, who we we thought we'd seen uh, dead like uh, earlier. Uh, someone found his body in, in like a coffin in the basement. Um, so it turns out he is actually Sydney's half brother is it was that right half brother yeah yeah while her mom was in hollywood and presumably sleeping with people she really didn't want to she had a baby and gave it up for adoption and that's that's roman right and not only is he the killer in this movie apparently four years ago he tried to reconcile with the mother she turned him away and he inspired uh he he recorded uh sydney's mother having the affair with uh her boyfriend at that point um, which so, so this means like this guy who was behind inspiring the killings from the first film, right? That's, that's he kind was of a, kind of like pulling the strings with Billy and, and yeah. got Billy to kill, or maybe even helped Billy kill Sydney's mom. Right, right. Which I I thought that was kind of cool. Uh, like I, I like the direction they went in there and trying to loop him back to being the original like uh, inspiration for the killings that started this whole franchise. What what, what did you think of that? It's not a horrible route to go. I mean, at this point, when you just are pulling shit out of your ass, like <laughs> the third movie in, people are still... F- so here's a weird thing about the Scream franchise. Most slasher franchises are based on iconic killers, and you might have a repeating character for one or two movies, but it's the killer that stays the same, mm. and the final girl or boy is different each movie, but the Scream franchise ha- always has the same final girl and always yeah. has a different killer. So it's <laughs> not really how most of these franchises work. So it forces you to make some bold decisions. I mean, other slasher franchises don't have that challenge. Like the, the killer kills people and you just choose choose who the final girl is. But in this, yeah. you've got to come up with a reason. Like, okay, why yet again is somebody <laughs> trying to kill Sydney and all her friends? And uh, they could have done worse, honestly, yeah. I, in my opinion. I mean, I could totally see somebody calling it dumb and stupid. But yeah. three movies in, you, what are you going to do? I, I don't think for what they could have done, it's not that bad. What do you yeah, think Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it works because, yeah, you're right. The killers are separate, but they all kind of like tie to this line of like reasoning. Like first one, uh, 
well, I mean, I guess this this guy inspired the first one because it was his dad. Uh, the 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 mom broke up his his uh, parents, and so he wants to kill Sydney. The second one was like uh, his mom, right, trying to get revenge for her son. Yeah. And now you have like this guy. So it's uh, I agree, like it's a stretch to come up with like different people that want to kill her, but they they do tie together pretty okay. And, like there's kind of a connection with all of them, right? Yeah, I mean, it's really all like butterfly affecting out from Sydney's mom and the. Um, Boy, I her, I'm tempted to call it promiscuity. I've I've seen this movie and the franchise uh, criticized for kind of like quote unquote slut shaming Sydney's mom, and I mean definitely in this one she would be doing things she was pressured to do or possibly just straight up raped. So you really um, can't put that on her at all in this one. But it all stems from Sydney's mother and the uh her life and, and what she's done or what's ha- had happened to her over her life and uh it's interesting that it all stems from that I, it's strangely consistent even though it's kind of wild and might make you roll your eyes at first but um, <laughs> yeah that's a it, really interesting case study yeah yeah you, you could draw it all back to her time in hollywood and and like yeah how she's treated there right and that would have led her to yeah do that later wow so interesting yeah, huh. and I mean that probably you know traumatized her. Maybe that was because you know yeah. she she's a lot more easy to demonize in the first film, or in even the second one. She's cheating on Sid's dad, um, and they play it up like oh she's sleeping around town and stuff. But in the if second, if you film? see her as like sexually traumatized as a young woman, then uh, her character becomes a lot more sympathetic. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Damn, that's that's quite an arc. Uh, Not that there's anything wrong with sleeping around town, but they're. You know, yeah. I think it's fair to say there's something wrong with cheating on your husband. Sure, sure. Yeah, no, that's so interesting. I wonder if like a, a future film will like, kind of pick up on... Because, I, I mean, yeah, that is such an interesting backstory, but I still feel like we don't know that much about her mom. All we've seen are like these photographs and like visions of her dead body. It would be cool to have more of a a, a, a character build out of her because like, yeah, we're just kind of going off the actions that we, that we know she's done. Yeah, I yeah, I'm not interested in that though. I, I'm interested in how it impacts Sid. I I think if you, I think it's cool to dig into her past, but I, I I certainly wouldn't want to see a movie with full on flashbacks with Sid's mom as a character. That would take it too far to me. Yeah, I was just hoping for like a better actress, might <laughs> have a, a wider range of emotions uh, than <laughs> the, the Nev Campbell. <laughs> man, so hard on Nev. I know, I know. She's she's tough for me, man. You know what, but, man? Uh, you know what would what you should do? You should watch Can't Hardly Wait uh-huh. and look at Jennifer Love Hewitt's performance. Yeah. And I think both of them coming up in Party of Five. I don't know how it all factors in or if one of them's copying the other, but she uses a lot of the same tools really? that, that Nev uses. Yep, she's doing <laughs> a lot of squinting and nostril stuff and like oh, turning man. her head sideways and putting her hand on her neck. And, yeah. <laughs> that was just acting in the 2000s. Right, I guess 90s. so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Uh, so, yeah. So, n- now we know who it is, uh, how his story ties to the rest of the story. Um, they have a fight. Uh, he shoots Sydney, and uh, we think she's dead. But luckily, while she was at the police station, she threw a bulletproof vest on. So, she comes back to life and stabs him. Gil and Dewey show up, and uh, I think, like in part one... And in part two, I think the killer pops up again, and this time Dewey like shoots him a bunch of times, and then shoots him in the head, and he dies. 
Yeah. Uh, which which thing on the whole? Which thing like the CF finale and and the house party and the, this whole uh, sequence? I thought the finale was the strongest part of the movie. Uh, it wasn't great, but it was pretty good. I think the house was a, a solid setting. As we mentioned, who the killer was and why certainly could have been worse. Um, and I liked a bit of the back and forth with the gun and who's wearing a vest and who's not and mm-hmm. having to shoot him in the head instead of the chest. Uh, yeah. It was it was kind of fun. Um, yeah. And it was, again, fun to just see the remaining characters kind of drop off all in one go here in the third act. Um, yeah. But what did you think of it? I, I agree. I like the setting of the house. It was like a pretty cool, creepy house with like a uh, really uh, neat like passageways and good props. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we didn't even mention the secret passageways, I don't think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was, that was a cool aspect of it. Um, I think, yeah, so some of the kills, like, uh, were a little forgettable, like, uh, one, the actress, um, who gets stabbed and the one actor who gets thrown out the window, but I did like the, the one where she's behind the mirror and she's like trying to get Dewey and Gil's attention. Um, but then this last, uh, face off between, um, Sydney and Roman, I think it's a little clunky. Cause like in the background, like the detective shows up randomly and gets killed, um, in the background, you're hearing uh, Gail and Dewey like trying to find a way to get into that room, and like they're just like shouting to each other, uh, adding like this background like a uh, dialogue for like no reason. Um, so I yeah I, I it, yeah for some reason I feel I feel like it kind of like deflated a little bit of the epic showdown between uh, Sydney and, and her half brother. I'll agree with that. Whatever Gail and Dewey were doing in this house, it all just kind of detracted from the movie. At one point, Dewey chooses to shock himself so that he can cut the power and turn out the lights. Uh-huh. I don't even know why that was necessary. <laughs> like, Wait, I may have th- missed something, but <laughs> I don't. I don't know why he did it. Was this at the house party? Yeah. Yep. Oh. 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 Okay. And this is like when they. Are, is this when they like they're trying to break into that room? May, yeah, oh, maybe he does it to, like, yeah, sure, I don't yeah. know, maybe he does it to get into one of the secret passageways or something, but I was yeah. not really following or caring about what was happening to them. It was all just them trying to get to Sydney, and it was just weird. Yeah, it was, it was. And, like, meanwhile, you have, like, this uh, battle going on with her and her half-brother, which I thought was, like, compelling, but I don't get why that had to be interrupted by those two. Yeah, weird. and him getting hit with the handle of the knife. Yeah, it was all <laughs> kind of dumb with them. Yeah, and then I feel like the movie ends like in a super cheesy way. Like if if it wasn't clear that Dewey and Gill were like uh, put in maybe too much in this film, uh, the movie ends with uh, Dewey proposing to Gill, and she accepts. So you, you think uh, you know uh, all is going well with them, and then Sydney um, shows up. They're all together, and I think in a final sign of like showing that she's ready to move on, she leaves. The door open and doesn't arm the security system so she's not living in fear anymore apparently even though I'm, like this is the third time this has happened uh, i had we, to wonder we, if that was wes craven literally leaving the door open to a sequel <laughs> that's a part four <laughs> yeah yeah exactly uh did, did you find that ending pretty cheesy yeah yeah it was cheesy i mean really again i don't dislike Gale and Dewey as characters but at this point if you're watching all three kind of in a row you're tired of it by this point <laughs> like yeah. it's just 
too much. They're going too hard on it. And really, it kind of feels like they used it as a crutch in this film to make up for the fact that they really couldn't get much of Nev Campbell's time. Yeah, yeah, right, right. And that is a big flaw of the movie is that she really doesn't appear until about halfway through the movie. I mean, she does, but you don't get much screen time with her at all. Right, yeah. Yeah, I would say uh, Dewey and Gale feel more like the main characters than than Nev does here. Um, uh, Yeah, that that, that was was kind of shocking. And uh, I think that kind of, you know, what what works really well in part one and part two is you've got Nev on screen for a while and then you're kind of like bonding with her and you're scared for her because she's like the clear target throughout the movie. Uh, And this one, because you get so little of her, do you feel like you were scared for her at all throughout the movie or not as much? Hmm. No, I mean, it's hard to say because I know she is alive in Scream 4. Um, but yeah, yeah you true. know, maybe in a way you you don't have that whole like, okay, I'm watching everyone die around Sid. I know he's gradually working his way to her, but it does maybe add a certain element of her being not quite as available on screen. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it's just, instead of like her friends, like like in in part one and two, like it was like her friends around her dying. This one is just like random cast members that have like nothing to do with her getting killed. So I, I just feel like she felt it was less affected to her. But then maybe that goes back to your point about like what she was feeling about her mother, and that's how they try to layer in the emotions that she was going through with in, in this whole ordeal. But otherwise, yeah, she feels pretty removed, and it it, it makes sense. Like what were you saying that uh, she wasn't as available for for shooting? Because I, I think that definitely comes across. We complained in Scream 2 that the new characters just really didn't hold a candle to the characters, any of the characters in the first film. How do you feel about the new characters in Scream 3? Uh, I like them less than the characters in Scream 2. Uh, what about you? I do as well, but then there's also this weird endearingness to them because they're playing the parts of the real-life characters. I liked that element of it. Um and I like that the killer was killing them in the order that they die in the script. Like, it added a kind of a whole new meta layer. I think each movie adds a whole new touch of meta, which is appreciated. Um, and I think that was the big meta layer for me this time, was that he's killing the people in the order that they die in the script. You know, he only did that for the, the first uh, two it was like the first then, two or three, yeah. So yeah. it really, it was just only a moment where you kind of think, yeah. this is what's happening. Because then Gail and and that actress are really scared if like they're next on the script, but then yeah, turns out the other guy dies. I, you know, I, I did the one character and the one like relationship that I, I really liked in this one was Gail and her counterpart, the, the actress that was playing her. I, yeah, I, um, Parker I like Posey. The with those. Yeah, yeah. I, I like the chemistry between those two. What, what did you think? Yeah, I did, but it was a little bit more of that humor that just wasn't working that much for me. Like, yeah. she was an unrealistic character. She, like, leaps into her security guard's arms, like, cartoon style at one point when she's Legs scared. Up. It's just, they just really make some jumps with the outlandish humor in this one that just don't work. And she was kind of a focal point for that in a few scenes. So I right. was harder on her character than I otherwise would have been for that reason. Okay, yeah. My favorite new character was uh, Patrick Dempsey as Detective Kincaid. Yeah, he was pretty cool. I liked him. He was an effective red herring, and him and Sid kind of had this weird relationship where they were confiding in each other and kind of trusting each other, but she was also really suspicious of him, and we were too. Right. And I think she had better chemistry 
with him than she did with uh, that guy. I can never remember his name. Trip McNeely. Ooh, there's another can't hardly wait connection. Uh, uh, her boyfriend in Scream too. Oh, Jerry O'Connell. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. That that, that was really cool. And that, and that scene of them, uh, the two of them, like talking at the police station, where she's pretty suspicious of him, but like they're diving into each other's backstories. Uh, that that was a good exposition. Yeah, and I like that these characters weren't necessarily people that Sid had a relationship with because you just you couldn't really do that again. I guess. Yeah, I know. Yeah, because she's like in seclusion now. She doesn't really have a relationship with anyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. I like that life for her. Sure. Um. How do you think the killer found Sydney's number? Yeah, they never went into that. They they gave some clues to make you believe the two people that possibly did have access to Sydney's phone number, and it wasn't either of them. Right. So, um, so that. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how it happened. And like he went from having to call uh, Cotton Weary and hold his girlfriend hostage just to find out where Sid was to just like magically knowing her phone number yeah, later in the I movie. <laughs> just figuring it out. Um, and then uh, another thing I wanted to ask you oh with all these films I always get kind of um, confused by the fact that the killer Ghostface Killer in earlier films of the earlier scenes will try to kill Sydney, like attack her right like in this one you had uh, her being attacked in the house Uh, in Scream 2 you had her being attacked like while she was in the car Scream 1 I think she's in the house gets attacked and so there were these moments where she's getting attacked with the intent to murder her but then the killer also wants to save her till the end to kind of like explain and reveal like the master plan so which one is it like did you want to kill her when he attacked her in the middle of the movie or were you just trying to like spook her and then you're ultimately going to like wait till the house party to kill her? <laughs> yeah, that is a fair question. Like why kill all these other people too? Yeah, exactly. Um, and if so, why, why them first? Yeah. I don't have an answer other than the fact that that's the way the movie needs to be structured. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's just a, a formula that they've built and it has to go that way. Yeah. Uh, all right. What, what else? What else did you like or, or not like? Um, one thing I didn't like that you touched on earlier was almost. I don't think there was really any kill that was a good kill. <laughs> yeah. They they almost all lacked quite a bit of suspense and and again shying away from the violence didn't really make for any creativity. So that right. that area was really lacking. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And that that's what made it like feel a lot less like slashery or horror for me. Did really feel more like a trying to be a comedy or, or some kind of like mystery. Yeah. Well, that's um, about all I got. Cool. All right. Well, do you want to jump to the rating then? Let's do it. All right. How many uh, dead mothers outside of a window would you give this one? I'm only going to give it 2.5 dead mothers outside of a window. Okay. I just felt like there were so few good things about it. <laughs> the third yeah. act was good, not great. I really loved the time in the set where you know as we talked about the reenactment of the scenes from Scream 1 but that wasn't that much of the movie Sid's barely in it um, a good chunk of the t- running time just I wasn't that interested it's an hour and 56 minutes so yeah two and exactly. a half how about yeah. you yeah alright nice uh, yeah yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm with you uh, I, I gave it a two uh, dead mothers outside of the window uh, I, I kind of felt like it was a little, a little forgettable I liked how they tried to tie the story to the other two and, and uh, you know the, the whole idea of like this person being the uh, the inspiration for the killings that started the first one I, I thought was good but otherwise it felt like it was missing like a lot of the wittiness and uh, 
the fun, like interesting kills of like the, the other ones. So that that was a little disappointing. And then, uh, yeah, I, I, the Dewey Gale thing kind of made me vomit. And then uh, I think Nev squinted one too many times for me on this one. Yeah, there really was nothing clever about the movie. No, yeah. Yeah, I was kind of missing that. Though, I feel like they tried to replace that with all the cameos. Like, did, did you pick up on that? Yeah, it was a bit ridiculous. Like, Jay and Silent Bob and Carrie Fisher. Like, yeah. it's just, like, really reaching. <laughs> I, I don't know why they bothered with some of this I know, stuff. so random. <laughs> oh, very random. Yeah. All right, well, anything else? Uh, I think that, oh, I think Roger Corman was in this, too. He's a, a director of, of old horror movies. I think he had a cameo, too. Oh, okay. I think Wes Craven even shows up in in one scene. Does he? Okay. Uh, yeah. So yeah, yeah. I, I feel like they they uh, the the writing took a hit, but they got some random people to show up. <laughs> right. Weird strategy. That'll fix it. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> All right, man. Ready to wrap it up? Yeah. Let's wrap this. All right. Well, that's gonna be it for our discussion on Scream Three. Uh, as we mentioned, we're going to be reviewing Scream 4 probably in the next few weeks. Is that going to be a Patreon episode, Brian? I haven't decided yet. We'll see. Okay. But uh, expect that to be coming out in the next few weeks and then obviously building up for the release of the fifth installment next month. If you enjoyed the episode, uh, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. That's going to help others find our show. And we always welcome the feedback. If you want to join our discussion, you can find our social links on horrormovieclub.com. Or you can shoot us an email at podcast at horrormovieclub.com. We'll be announcing next week's movie on Facebook and Twitter in case you want to watch it before the next episode. We are also on Discord where we have a channel and we have some other listeners and horror fans that we're chatting it up with. So we'd recommend uh, checking that out. There's actually some fun watch parties going on this month. Holiday horror films, um, which Brian and I just sat in on one for Silent Night, Deadly Night. Um, so that's, that's a fun group to watch some good horror films with. Um, our logo is by ABMA Pop Art, so check her out. And if you're looking for some uh, holiday gifts, she's got some great uh, horror movie club merchandise as well as other merchandise. So uh, you can feel free to check her website out and find that there. And until next time, if you find yourself getting a call from someone you think you know, make sure to have some kind of secret code. Uh, so you can confirm it's who you think they are or maybe just have them give you a fax or something uh, just to make sure you're not getting a call from Ghostface Killer. Our code word will be Fedora. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Followed by two squints. <laughs> you, can't, you can't hear a squint. Yeah, I know. <laughs> maybe. Uh, I guess it's like or something. Like Fedora and an awkward pause where you can tell Ashton's spending. Exactly. <laughs> and a nose flare from Brian. <laughs> <laughs>